Newspapers love a dramatic headline, as we all know. But every report about this case starts with an incident with a small insect, which triggered what was the world's largest spree killing for 30 years that almost no one in the West knows. The case also triggered the resignation of a number of police officials and government ministers alike. Was the insect the final straw for a man, or was he driven to the edge by his own actions? This is the case of Wu Bum Con and the Uriel Massacre, and this is Murder Me on Monday. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Murder Me on Monday podcast. I'm Cameron, and joined with me is Mother. Hello! For the months of July and August, to give us a little respite, we'll be releasing episodes on the main feed fortnightly, but we'll also continue to release a Patreon exclusive on the alternate weeks. We decided to do this rather than take the whole of August off, so we keep giving back to our Patreon subscribers for showing us the love. We really do appreciate you. By becoming a patron, you not only support our work, but also gain access to extra perks, such as early access to episodes, bonus content, and even stickers should you want them. Just drop us a line when you sign up giving us your address. And, as is the case of one of our supporters, Stupid Royal Mail took a week to deliver our stickers, sent first class, and we thought they'd gone missing. But my replacement batch arrived at the same time. They got double the number of stickers. Can people stick it on weird shit and send a picture to the Instagram? That'd be interesting. Uh, put it up some, if you're tall and you found something in Tesco is really high up, or like a Walmart, put it somewhere really high and take a picture and send it to us. I, that amuses me. The lovely Cherie has sent it where she's got it stuck on her iPod case. She's I just like the idea of having to inconvenience someone to have to <laughs> peel that sticker off because of our <laughs> podcast. That brings me joy. We are off to North Korea this week, or to give the country its proper name, the Republic of Korea. The secretive one that's closed off is North Korea. These guys are just reserved. I'm not going to give the whole history of the nation, but some people will have heard about the Korean War in the 1950s, which many Americans lost their lives in, which is how the peninsula became to be split. Korea has a population of nearly 52 million, with half of them living in the capital, Seoul. Even though the population is in decline, it's still the third most densely populated country in the world. I remember the Seoul Olympics in 1988, but others may be more familiar with the explosion of K-pop in the West. Right, so if we're discussing K-pop, Mother, we need to do the the little little signal they do on their hands. Do this with your hands, Mother. Make a weird little love heart. Um, That is actually well done. I tried to get someone to do this today and they couldn't do it. They basically did the Spider-Man thing with their hands. K-pop are uh, everything. Please, Twitter. Be behind us. We don't say anything bad about our Lord and Savior K-pop. BTS, we love them. <laughs> don't address them again because they will go after Taylor Swift fans and I know. they win. And yeah, help me. Well, Korean food is very popular, isn't it now? And even I've eaten in Korean restaurants in London about nine years ago. And as we know from one of our recent episodes, they are the largest consumers of podcasts in the world. I also can't find any resources on pronunciation that are not AI, which is not very helpful. So I'm going to do my best. Could you have picked a more obscure, random little place to do it? You said this isn't well known in the West, no. partly because of translation and publicity as a whole. Yeah. I know, but but you can't even pronounce this. There are more but unfortunately, harmed in the event than know about this event, if no one knows, knows about it. And it's probably one of the, the biggest spree or mass killings have ever happened up until the time. Yeah. Like, 
Eventually, it's going to be two scientists that have clubbed each other to death because someone took the, <laughs> the fucking penguin jerky or something weird. Like this, this just keeps getting more and more obscure. This might not be a real place. You might have just made it up to see no, if you can catch no, people out. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I swear. But it's. I like obscure cases. You know that, and it's. It makes it more interesting for the listeners as well as for me to research. It becomes a little bit stressful at times. But back to the case. Wu Bum Con. There's a spelling out there of Wu Bon Com. And the second name is hyphenated with the secondary part being lowercase, which is not something I'd seen before. I also have two dates of birth for him. 24th of February 1955 and 18th of March 1955. Either will do. Born in Busan, also called Pusan, which is the second largest metropolitan area in South Korea after Seoul. The reporting is sparse, a lot to do with protecting those involved who were secondary victims in a way. They keep things private. Some of it is the fact that almost nothing was reported in English-speaking press. So I know absolutely nothing about Wu's upbringing or family dynamics. In South Korea, the law states that native men, not migrants, must do at least 21 months of national service. This can be either military service or serving in the public sector, but that's often considered the soft option. Now, we obviously don't have this in the UK, so I don't know much about it, and it would vary from region to region. But would it still work even if you're in higher education? I know some countries that have this mandatory sort of, it's not a draft, but mandatory service, that if you're receiving a bachelor degree or a master's degree, either the time is halved, so you only need to do, say, 12 months instead of 24, or you don't need to do it at all. It's a, you get into higher education because you want people to be higher educated, so you have to do that, and you don't have to do the service. Or if you're just not going to do it, then you may as well do the service and sort of help the country that way in some regard. Well, in Korea, it's actually usual for males to do two years of university and then join the military. But you actually have until the age of 28 to join. So oh, so it's a time span. Yeah, you can, you can defer it. Yeah, that makes sense if you're trying to get your qualification prior to that. Yeah, although I feel like it'd be better to do it and then get qualified because then you're going to be out of the sort of industry or environment for a couple of years. It's very different being in education to then going into like a military mm. service. It'd be easier the other way around, I think. I guess depends. Conscientious objectors, those who refused to serve in the military, were typically imprisoned, with over 600 individuals usually imprisoned at any given time. The vast majority of these young men were from the Jehovah's Witness faith. However, in a court ruling of 2018, conscientious objectors were permitted to reject military service, which is where the public sector work comes in. And again, I think there's a K-pop star that's in the news recently for signing up at the age of 28. I remember seeing something in the last week. Now, Wu did just that looking at the maths. I think he joined at 21 and he became a Marine before he was discharged in 1978 at the age of 23. He was a sharpshooter and also earned the nickname Power, which I shall not be using. Makes him sound like a bloody Power Ranger or something, doesn't it? Up until that point, he had done well. So... He fairly naturally joined the police force upon leaving the military. And he was so highly regarded, he was picked in April of 1981 to guard what was called the Blue House, 
which from 1948 to 2022 was the official residence of the president of South Korea and was situated in Seoul. It's got a big park and everything. It's the Korean equivalent of, say, the White House. Not so much 10 Downing Street, but it's guarding the political elite and rulers of the country. It's a prestigious appointment, career-making. But by December 1981, Wu had developed a problem with drinking. That wouldn't have been a big problem usually. Lots of police do have a problem with alcohol by using it as a means to cope with what they have to deal with. But it was his behaviour when tanked up which was the problem. I can't confirm how bad Wu's behaviour was, but it was enough for him to be unceremoniously booted out from that prestigious post to a police station in a place called Kungayu Village, which is in Yurion County, which was back in the same province where he was born. He lived a short distance away from work in another village called Togokri. For context, there are a lot of small villages in the area, all within walking distance, but some of them were over rough terrain. Wu was 27 years old. He lived with his girlfriend, Chun, and according to Chun, he was really upset with being sent to this village. Wu considered it a backwards hellhole and felt the villagers looked down on him and Chun for not being married. It's 1982. Even in the West, people outside the larger metropolitan areas were very conservative in the outlook and did frown on people living together whilst not married. But why pay How for How do you know you want to marry someone? Exactly. It's a recipe to fun. If you like them enough, live with them first. Bitches be crazy. Both, both sexes. Yeah. I, why pay for a big party for others and lawyers' fee to unravel it years later? I get why they didn't marry, but it could have been another nail in his previously sparkling career. Mm. And now to our insect catalyst. 26th of April, 1982. Wu was having a nap before he had to start his shift at 4pm. Chun says she saw a fly land on his chest as he was sleeping. And as no one with even a smattering of intelligence does ever, she swatted it. Shifts are brutal on the body and the mind. He was asleep. He didn't even know there was a fly on him. Of course, he woke up and he lost his shit with her and stormed out to report for his 4pm shift at the police station. Conflicting reports now of him getting to work and no one stopping him as he hit the bottle. Other reports were that if he did hit the bottle, he was so immune to it, he appeared physically fine. It will become clear later why they couldn't tell if he was drunk or not. Is it because he's always pissed? They don't know what he's like when he's sober. That could have... Very valid point, actually. Apparently he's a big whiskey drinker, but I'm not sure if it... It's like finding out your uncle's always done coke and you kind of never realised. He's always high. Yeah. And you just think that's your uncle. And then when he doesn't do it, you think he's depressed for some reason. Yeah. Wu had three and a half hours to brood on that fly-swatting slap. And by 7.30pm, which was probably time for a break, he left the station and went home to Chun and proceeded to beat her up quite badly and smash their small apartment up, breaking furniture, the lot. No idea if Chun called his colleagues to tell him that he had snapped. Maybe she was scared to report. 
woo, it, it could have made things a hundred times worse. Or if the neighbours reported it or just didn't hear or maybe didn't care. Woo then goes to what is described as the reservists' armoury or in some places the armoury at the police station. I'm inclined to think it's the local military armoury. He either intimidates colleagues on the desk or simply walks past the desk as everyone was in a meeting, leaving all the weapons unattended and helped himself to, wait for it, two M2 carbines, two handguns, at least 180 rounds of ammunition, assume that's across all the weapons, and seven hand grenades. What he was doing for the next couple of hours, we have no idea. If anyone noticed he was acting up or had vanished, we don't know. But we know about 9.30pm when he enters the local post office, which was where the local telephone exchange was, and by extension, the ability for people to contact emergency services. I know in today's day and age, they'd have a flagging system thinking, why can this person withdraw essentially half the armoury? When I was in a shop the other day doing the self-scan, I'd have someone come over to like pre-approve to make sure I wasn't actually stealing stuff, and that's just me buying some, some food. Never mind, homie just took out like, a s- small arsenal. Yeah. Well, why, why didn't something flag? I know it's in the 80s. I wouldn't have had the infrastructure for it. But come on. Th- why isn't there someone on the gate saying, do you know what? You don't need seven hand grenades. We're not like actively at war with something. What's going on? Well, this is what eventually happens. Yeah. So he's at the telephone exchange. He shoots three people there and leaves after making sure that the telephone exchange was inoperable. Assuming he actually vandalized it. Police were alerted, however. But it takes them over an hour to gather 37 officers to try and deal with whatever was happening. They actually had no idea who or what was going on, except bodies were starting to pile up. Wu goes to another local village. There is a night market there. When you say they don't know what's going on and there's just bodies piling up, is that just reports of bodies? Yeah, gunfire and bodies and all that. It takes them an hour to get to this and he's on a full rampage at this point, okay? And the catalyst seems to be that he was pissed off at his wife. Obviously, there's a million, million other things that lead to this. I'm not saying the prescription is he got donked on the chest when he was having a nap. But that seems to have set him off. That seems to be the spark that lit the paper, yeah. But it's a whole lot more than that. So he's at this other village where this night market is. And he throws a grenade into the middle of it and shoots people as they flee. Six die. Chun has also turned up to see what was happening. If she heard the gunfire, I don't know. But apparently, he wounded her too. At 10.30pm, he is in another village. He grabs a teenager and uses him as a hostage to get into a local grocery store where he shoots the shopkeeper's wife and two daughters and injures the shopkeeper who manages to flee. He breaks into a house and shoots four people dead in their beds. Wu then goes to another house close by and the owner actually saw an armed policeman. Remember, Wu had been on duty when this started and he hadn't changed out of his uniform. The occupant of the house asked Wu what was happening. This is less than 30 years after the Korean War. People are still scared. So when Wu tells the man that North Korean agents had been spotted nearby the man completely believed him. 
The man, thinking that this was a good, honourable citizen doing his duty to protect civilians, offers Wu dinner. Wu accepted. I was and am still baffled by that. North Korean agents nearby, here, have some food to keep you going. Well, if he's there trying to defend him, that would make sense. Yeah. I'll be more concerned about the soldier that's actually, yeah, let's, you know, stop paying attention to my post and let's have some food, let's have some hot dogs or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be more concerned about that. There were other people at the house. It's late, but they were happily eating and talking to this new visitor because it was actually awake. These things can be huge, can't they? Who it was for, I don't know. But when Wu started to moan about his meagre salary and how he had been done wrong by being moved from the Blue House to this horrible village, it's not Seoul, is it? The others at the wake were probably thinking they had a bit of a nutter on their hands and rather stupidly started to tease Wu, telling him that his gun and ammunition didn't even look real. Don't tease a nutter, especially a well-armed one. Yeah. They probably had a skin full themselves by this point. I'd sober up real quick around a gun. I don't care. He showed them how real they were by promptly shooting at everyone at the dinner table and anyone else in the house and catching those that had run outside. That was another 20 bodies to his count. There is mention of another night market, whether he goes back to his original target or there is a different one, don't know, but he shoots that one up. There were five villages he struck at in total. He ends up at a farmhouse only two and a half miles away from his starting point at the police station. He tells the farmer that he, a good upstanding police officer, is chasing a North Korean infiltrator and the farmer has to gather his whole family together in the living room so Wu can protect them. Of course, the man is going to comply. And they sit there for two hours until the actual police catch up with Wu following his rampage around the region. The farmer and his family are no longer being protected but are being held as hostages. Wu strapped two grenades to his chest, then detonated them, killing himself and two of the farmer's family. The farmer survived, but was badly injured. And that is why authorities could not tell what or how much alcohol he had in his system. There was nothing left of Wu to analyse. Plus, there are many reports that he could not have covered the area and the rough terrain between the villages if he was drunk. And again, there is no mention of him continuing to drink as he is committing these acts. So it's anger that's fueling this. Although if he is drunk and if he's got a history of being drunk before, then I think the his capacity to perform functionally whilst pissed off his nuts is probably higher than most people. So he could probably probably have an above average level of like intoxication to be able to perform. This is true. Look at music artists. Yeah, I was just thinking they're of Rolling out, they're Stones. They're out of their tree and they can perform. So yeah. yeah, Rolling Stones. His girlfriend later said that Wu had an inferiority complex due to teasing about them not being married. Now, either of them could have changed that, so I don't think it's a remotely valid reason. He could have felt inferior due to the status change of the job. And some people are their jobs, are they not? Wu killed 
at least 63 people, including six people who later died from their wounds and obviously himself. Police stated that there were 52 dead, but one local paper even said 78. No one knows where they got that figure from. His victims' ages range from two years old to 70 years old. Later on, the provincial chief of police was suspended and four other officers were arrested for negligence on duty. And I think that was around how he managed to get his hands on the guns and the ammunition. They should never have left it unlocked and they should never have left it unguarded. He should never have been able to take it. The Interior Minister of South Korea and the National Police Chief offered to resign. The Interior Minister was held responsible by the President and actually did resign or get sacked on the 29th of April. No idea what happened to that police chief, but I bet it wasn't pleasant. There was obviously an inquiry. The government paid compensation to the victims and their families. The Uriol massacre was also the deadliest deliberate single loss of life in South Korean history until the Daegu subway fire in 2003, which killed 192 and injured another 152. 185 were identifiable. Six could not be identified even when using DNA, and one person's possessions were identified, but they couldn't find their remains. That particular subway fire was done by a former taxi driver who had been left partially paralysed after a stroke, and he was upset with his medical treatment and decided he was going to commit suicide but didn't want to go alone. He got life in prison due to remorse and mental instability. Wu's rampage was the worst mass shooting in modern history committed by a single perpetrator and remains the third deadliest, only being surpassed later by the Norway attacks, otherwise known as Utoya Massacre by Anders Breivik in July of 2011, where 77 died. And the 2017 Las Vegas shooting by Stephen Paddock, where 61 people died, including two victims who died in 2019 and 2020. Spree killers, sometimes referred to as rampage killers, murder two or more victims, but at more than one location. Although their murders occur in separate locations, their spree is considered a single event because there is no cooling off period between the murders. Again, some places will call them mass murderers and serial killers, and it's still an argument between experts. The possession of firearms is generally forbidden in South Korea. The law specifically lists people who are allowed to possess. They are soldiers, law enforcement officials, secret service agents, licensed manufacturers, sellers, renters, importers and exporters and people in possession of a cultural asset, and some educators, customers at a private shooting range. The estimated total number of guns, both legal and illegal, held by civilians in Korea. In 2005, it was estimated at 510,000, but by 2017, it was estimated at 79,000. 
so they were working really hard at getting rid of guns. But there are some strange rules, such as people who need it for self-defence, but only those who can prove that they are at risk due to the nature of their work or social status. And possession of a pepper spray for self-defence is legal, but you do need a permit from the police. And replica firearms are also actually generally forbidden in South Korea. So all of this got me wondering about mental health and alcoholism in South Korea, because me. Many South Koreans often describe discussions of mental health as taboo. It's a mindset deeply rooted in the public conscience, making mental health awareness and advocacy work by South Korean physicians largely ineffectual. Only 20% of South Koreans seek out mental health care when they are depressed. And nearly 75% of South Korean elderly individuals suggest that depression and other mental health problems are a sign of weakness. Nearly one in four suffer from a mental disorder, although only one in ten receive treatment. Every day, nearly 40 South Koreans commit suicide. They like their drink. We Brits get some major flack for drinking, but South Koreans down 13.7 shots of spirit every week. We're known for binge drinking, though, well, more so than chronic drinking, I think. Well, that 13.7 shots, boom, to put it in context, Russia, 6.3 shots. And the Philippines, the third, come at 5.4 shots. Now, soju is the locally fermented rice spirit. So when they talk about him drinking whiskey, he was probably drinking this stuff. I really want to try that. I follow a few YouTubers that, but they're basically their job is drinking and doing stupid shit. It's funny. And they drink it a lot and they say it always tastes nice. And I'm like, I really want to know what it is, but it's actually quite expensive to get over here. Yeah, it would be. And it doesn't justify it, but it looks nice. Well, it's got a 20% alcoholic content and accounts for 97% of all sales of alcohol in South Korea. That sounds a lot, but it's not, and it could be worse. We in the West tend to... basically a wine. It's a strong wine. Yeah. We tend to have a specific opening hours where you can buy alcohol. South Korea? Nope. Alcohol is readily available at any convenience store, supermarket, street vendor, shop, restaurant, 24 hours a day. You can also drink anywhere. You can drink on the beach, public park, or walk down the street swigging it. There are no regulations barring public drinking. Costs. Spirits in South Korea are also cheap compared to, say, America or the UK. A 375 mil of soju is around 1,500 won, which is the currency, or 89 pence or a dollar 14 cents. I had a friend that went to Bali, I know a different place, different place geographically as well, but like a pint of beer out there is like 80p. Yeah. It's incredibly cheap. And it's good beer as well, apparently. There are a whole lot of social rules too. You must never, ever decline a drink of alcohol unless you are medically exempt really you can't have an empty glass and you also can't leave a session before your boss so it's not really surprising we had an issue 
Is it part of the culture where everyone goes drinking afterwards? Yes. That used to exist in the UK, at least, especially yeah. within the police force. Like They'd go to almost like lunch beer, wouldn't they? Oh, in the offices in the 80s when I was it's working. Big thing. Yeah, people used to go out and have a pint. And it wasn't just on a Friday. And it wasn't just a pint. It was no. several. Yeah. 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 Could he have been stopped? Possibly. Could he have been helped before he got to volcano level? Maybe. Um, I don't know. Well, he definitely could have been stopped because several people above him were retired or fired. Yes. There is a Wikipedia page. There is also a Murderpedia page. I believe one podcast on this and one YouTube video. Otherwise, nothing. It's very, very sad. So I've got some questions that are going to be pointed towards you and I guess the listener. They kind of have ideas as well about what I'm going to ask. Why do you think this case in particular allowed it to get so volatile and reach such high numbers of casualties? I suspect it's because they're relatively isolated villages. They obviously don't have great technology in the 80s. So they wouldn't be able to communicate easily between them. He had such easy access to weaponry and his superiors weren't doing their due diligence. Correct. But also as well, he took out the telephone exchange. Somebody intentionally sabotaged it. It's yeah. like it's like sabotaging the incoming route that the emergency services would take. Yes, exactly. Or setting a bomb off in one location so everyone floods in the opposite direction, and then you have the actual secondary bigger bomb, which is a common tactic used. Yes, that's exactly right. I guess they could have had like a relay system, so maybe him sabotaging that exchange did allow some of it to be rerouted. So some emergency calls must have gotten through, or else the police wouldn't have been alerted. But take an hour to get hold of 37 officers to actually try and work out. They must have, by that point, realised, hang on, we're one missing, where is he? We can't coordinate it. Yeah, yeah. and where's, what, hang on, we've got guns missing. It, oh, hell, it must be him. Where's he gone? You're just listening for gunfire, explosions, and following bodies, aren't you? Another thing, this isn't really a question. The You said that he did very successfully in the army initially, or yes. when he had his service, that he was a sharpshooter, etc., now, because that wasn't during um, active wartime, it was 20 years post, I think you said? Um, the th- Korean War? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah Korean Approximately. War. Yeah. The traits that make someone a good soldier doesn't make you a good policeman. Your ability to be good in like a firefight in, in like a wartime event or the training that pr- makes you a good soldier does not make you good at conflict resolution in the slightest and actually being a proper police officer. He wasn't a proper police officer. He was, but he worked specifically for like the Blue House's protection. So it probably translates a little bit better because you're not interacting with the public in the same way. You kind of have a job more like a soldier would than an actual police officer. Yeah, I mean, it's like the diplomatic protection squad and stuff like that. They're not normal police officers. They have a different skill set. They might fall under that category. And I guess that might be where I'm not falling apart, but I'm thinking, why would you want a soldier to be a police officer? Because they aren't the same things. It's about taking orders, especially in that culture, doing what your superior officer tells you what to do. Why do you think he lashed out to the neighbouring villages? I think he'd just gone over the edge by that point. He just snapped. Everything built up. Yeah, and it was. I think it was to take... I mean, there is obviously some intent involved in that, in that he held these people, some of them, hostage for two hours. You would have thought he would have calmed down or somebody would have been able to talk, but maybe he was just beyond the point of no return by then. And he didn't like these villagers. He thought that they were beneath him. And the fact they teased him, he probably didn't have it hold any value to life. Obviously, trying to understand someone's thought process that goes through this is difficult for 
basically everyone because we don't think like that because mm-hmm. we don't have many people that behave like this why did he do this he's angry he doesn't like the locals and how that they had a certain feeling towards him and his um living situation whether that be a figment of his imagination or not that's how he feels about something yes he's resentful about leaving the blue house mm-hmm. so he takes it out on the nearest outlet being the surrounding villages that he was then posted to and why did he not specifically target his wife then I know she got injured, but she wasn't a specific target. Why didn't he lash out towards the other police officers or officials as a whole? Because he might resent why he's put there. But he's lashed out on these the surrounding village. Because they were unarmed. They were easy targets. And he had that resentment towards them in yeah. the first place. And if you see, there's only one picture I've seen of this guy. And he does look big, powerful. I mean, it could be a, a trick of the shot. But he does look quite intimidating. And it could be a PowerPoint thing, PowerPoint. It could be a power trip by that point, which I think it probably was. I'm just, again, wondering. Yeah, we've, I've got no answers. It's a very, very sad case that people just don't know. And it's unfortunate I can't actually list out all the victims for you as I would normally do because, well, one, there was an awful lot of them and two, none you can't of pronounce them, them. I can't pronounce them. And the lists are not complete either. They vary in number. And no, I'm not going to mangle names. I did try. There was nowhere that I could find actually how to pronounce these names. So I, I did the best I could. And the victims do deserve to be remembered and not forgotten about. This is just a case that just isn't known. And it's very sad. And I can guarantee you we're never going to cover Utoya. And I doubt very much we'd ever cover the Las Vegas ones because... It's kind of too fresh as well. There is still some um, degree of... um, It's still not clear with the Las Vegas one what his... Motivation was? Wife or ex-wife did or did not know. Okay. And there's a lot of stuff that makes me a bit uncomfortable. It's not clear-cut. And with Utoya and Anders Brevik, he's not mentally ill. I just think he's one of these nasty, nasty, nasty people that will never, ever be anything other than who he is, which is a complete and utter right-wing Nazi nut job. <laughs> That's what that I don't know is. enough about the case to comment on oh, that. Oh, God. If you actually see him doing a, a Nazi salute in court, how somebody... Well, that narrows it down a bit, doesn't it? And that is the end of this week's episode. So there we are. Thank you very much for listening. If you liked it, please like, favorite, subscribe, all that good stuff. Send us in a message. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Murder Me and Monday Podcast. Patreon is in the description below where we produce content fortnightly. And we will see you on the normal podcast fortnightly. But if you want it every week, it's on the Patreon. We'll see you next time. Peace. Bye.